Well, I invite you to turn with me in your uh, Bibles to Second uh, Samuel chapter one. Second Samuel chapter one. I'm sorry, chapter two actually. Today, Second Samuel chapter two, and you can find that in the Old Testament. It's after you know Ruth and Judges and so forth at the beginning of the the uh, Old Testament before you get to First and Second Kings. And surprise, surprise, it's right after First Samuel. You can locate it there as well. Second uh, Samuel. Uh, chapter 2. If you need a, uh, a Bible, there should be some at the end of the, the pew, or you can look it up in your device. I think a lot of us have the scriptures app in there now as well. And as you uh, turn there, let me uh, mention to you that if you had to miss uh, last Sunday, uh, I just want to encourage you to, to take time to download the, the message from last week and at least listen to the first 10, 12 minutes of it, uh, of the message. Because I laid out some of the foundation for the method to our madness of how we're going to be going through this book, Second Samuel, and why we even would work through a book of the Bible systematically that way. Might be helpful for you to, to listen to that. And then also talked a little bit about just sort of bringing us up to speed. We had done First Samuel last year, but it's been a number of months since we were, we were there. So bringing you up to speed on all that took place in First Samuel and getting us up. To the things that are happening in Second Samuel. Again, you can find a link on the little Creek Week email if you get that, or through our website to the podcast. You can even, you know, you can set it up so the messages come in each week in case you're out and you can listen to the ones that you you need to. Uh, today, though, let me remind us. Uh, so listen to that for a general introduction. And let me remind us, though, of some of the themes and sub-themes that we're going to see in 2 Samuel. And I'll come back to these again and again, I'm sure. And the one main theme that we're going to look for over and over again is this. Who is king? Who is king? And it's not a complicated question, actually, because God is king. Uh, Jesus is king. Uh, God is king over his people. But the people in 2 Samuel forget that, both the leaders and the followers, uh, just like we forget that in our own lives. And, and it has implications, and it plays out when we forget it, and it has implications when they forget about it. So that's the main big picture theme that I want you to be thinking about each week and, and praying through in your own life. What does it mean for God to be king in my life and in my relationships and then uh, we mentioned last week a number of what I would call sub-themes that we already started tackling next last week, looking at God's sovereignty and, and, and some others. Uh, we're going to look and see as we work through Second Samuel how fickle the masses can be. How quickly we run after uh, this or that leader and then become easily disappointed and abandon that track. We're fickle. People sometimes we're going to look at the theme of of the Lord and his vengeance and realize that vengeance is the Lord's. Uh, all of us have probably had some damage happen to us in our lives. And uh, there and we see that happening in our society as well. And there's certainly nothing wrong with us wanting to see justice and righteousness to happen in those situations. But the fact is, all those things aren't going to be perfectly wrapped up in this life. Only the Lord can ultimately resolve those things. We're going to see that theme. God's timing, not our timing. We'll see in a couple of weeks. You know, sometimes we find the Lord seems to just be throwing us out into things that we're not really prepared for. And we feel at at our wit's end. 
And it's an opportunity to recognize that he's there with us. Other times we feel like he is so slow doing the things that we think he ought to do right now. God's timing is not our timing. We're going to see uh, scripture. We're going to look at what the scripture says just about who God is. That Yeah, he's near and he's close to his people and he cares for them. He loves them. But he's also awesome in his holiness and to be reverenced in his power. Uh, God makes promises we'll see as well. And he keeps them. What a time for us to remember those in this election year, isn't it? The promises from whichever party you listen to and every candidate are just spilling over. And if you've been around the block a few times, you'll hardly listen to any of them because you're not sure one ounce of it's going to happen. But, uh, but God's promises, they're sure. They're yea and amen in, in him. They, they are something we can bank on. And then lastly, we'll look. Uh, as we get further along in Second Samuel, if you know anything about Second Samuel, it's where David uh, struggles and falls into a temptation, struggles with temptation and succumbs to uh, sin with Bathsheba. And we see that even as the king of Israel makes that horrible step and decision, God's still with him. God uh, is able to bring him to a place of him recognizing his his need for forgiveness, for grace and mercy, and for him to really turn and, and see genuine change in his life as he embraces that, even though some of the consequences uh, still are there from his actions. So these are some of the things we're going to see as we work our way through Second Samuel, and I, I'm excited for it uh, to, for us to go through it. I think all, just that's just a snippet, really, of all that's that's in there. For today, let me just suffice it to say by, by just a sentence or two of introduction for our passage, King Saul is now dead. He was the first king uh, anointed in, in 1 Samuel. He is now dead. He, he, we read about his, his death in chapter 1. And David has been designated by Samuel, the prophet, to be king. And, and now is the time that God is going to bring him into that role that he has been waiting for. As Saul chased him all over the place at the end of 1 Samuel, this is all now coming to fruition. But we see that there's still problems, still division, still disunity. And I think we can learn some things from that today. So Second Samuel chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 11 and then a couple of verses from the end of the chapter. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any city of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent his messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, 
the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old. And when he began to reign in Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that King David, and it was in Hebron, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And then turn with me to just the last couple of verses, verse 30 and verse 31, after we read a description of the battle that ensues, this civil war that takes place with uh, this splintering of God's people. Verse 30 says this, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Ashahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for your word and its truth. And we ask that you would allow it to speak into our lives in a transforming way by the work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's difficult for groups to stay united, isn't it? Especially if they're not submitted jointly to a higher cause or if they lose vision for what their purpose is collectively. And particular when, particularly, too, when egos come into play and we want power or control. Perhaps some uh, examples from the rock and roll world will help us to get a picture of how easy it is for us to get off track with uh, some groups that, you know, for a time produced, we might say, some remarkable music that folks all over the world enjoyed, but that struggled to stay unified, to stay focused on their purpose. The Eagles group was in the 1980s, or in 1980, perhaps the most popular band in America. Lead singer uh, Don Henley and also musician Glenn Fry were intense and driven folks that had helped found the band. Several original members had already rotated out because of the toxic atmosphere that those two guys brought to the table. Several replacement band members had come in and weren't terribly happy but just agreed to go along to get along, but guitarist Don Felder couldn't stand being treated like a second-class band member. Well, the tensions between the group flared uh, all the way through 1979, but they came to a head around a 1980s, uh, in 1980 at a benefit concert for Senator Alan Cranston. Felder didn't want the group to even be involved in these kind of political events. And so I guess it wasn't surprising when the senator's wife was brought to meet him backstage and he said simply, nice to meet you, I guess. Those two words sent Glenn Fry into a rage and a fit. On stage that night, the Eagles were actually calling one another out in the midst of the concert. And Glenn Fry kept counting down the numbers of songs left. There's three more. There's two more until he was planning to go and physically beat down his fellow band member, 
uh, backstage afterwards. Well, uh, Felder was smart enough to get in his limo and get out of there. And the band did not play together again for 14 years. Well, some of us go back a little bit further than the Eagles and maybe remember the Everly Brothers. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I gather they began in the 1950s. And the Everly Brothers, they were biological brothers. They, they held things together pretty good for the first 20 years until in 1973 they had a concert in Hollywood where uh, one of the brothers, Don it was, showed up drunk. And he began to get the lyrics wrong throughout the presentation, and, and, and finally his brother Phil was fed up with it. And he did what some of those rock and roll musicians do from time to time. He smashed his guitar. The only problem is he smashed it on his brother's head. The two did not speak again to one another at all until 1983 at their father's funeral. And then they took up a short reunion tour a couple of times, and, and that uh, ended in the early 2000s, the Everly Brothers. Hard to stay united, right? Hard to show grace with one another. Hard to maintain unity and stay focused on the things that God calls us to, especially Especially if we don't have perspective of God's sovereign purposes, of what he's doing. That it's, it's his thing, not my thing, not your thing, not one person's thing or another thing, but it's his thing that he's doing. And we should recognize, we talk about unity in the kingdom, and we're going to focus on that today as we see this kind of civil war dynamic unfolding for Israel. That when we talk about unity, we're talk, not talking about unanimity. The body of believers, the people of God, don't need to all look the same or act the same or think the same or even agree about everything. In fact, that probably would be unhealthy. And it doesn't preclude our active participation and opinions in the, the body of Christ. But, but what it does invite us to is to resist the kind of division and disunity that's over trivial matters or that's just over a personality or over pride. Uh, there's probably some valid reasons to divide. We see the apostles, even uh, John, Mark, and Paul went separate ways. They just couldn't agree on how to even do something good like missions. And they did it different ways. And God managed to bless both of those. Uh, we see that Jesus talks about the necessity, actually, of some division. I don't know if you read through the Gospels lately, but he says that because of what Christ does, his transforming work, sometimes mother and father are going to be divided from children. There's going to be that kind of separation. Uh, and, of course, we know that we can sometimes have unity, but have unity around falsehood, even have unity around evil, right? <laughs> Lots of people in the world get united around something that's not any good. So we've got to be discerning about unity. But absolutely, we see that God calls us to it. And this is an interesting chapter to look at it. Uh, look, look back at the verses uh, with me there in Second uh, Samuel chapter 2 and see what's happening with David. Okay, so God sovereignly, we saw in chapter 1, taken Saul out of the picture finally. And David waited, although it was difficult for, for that to happen and even honored God's sovereignty in that. And now God's sovereignly bringing him into place as the king. 
We see it happening in a couple of ways that, that God's in the midst of this. Look at verse 1, what David does. This could be a whole sermon in itself. He says, David inquired of the Lord. We saw that a couple of times in 1 Samuel. We'll see it a few more times in 2 Samuel. It fits with what we talked about a few weeks ago in this idea of dependent prayer. David's seeking the Lord's will, and he's submitting himself and his role to God's sovereign purposes. In this case, it was just about where to move, you know, from Ziglag, where they were in foreign territory, back to Hebron, where they were in home turf. So David inquires of the Lord. David uh, receives this anointing. Back in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel, the prophet, had already given him a private anointing. That no, you know, knowing that he would one day be king, but it didn't materialize until Saul passed away. And we see in these uh, verses here in our passage, it says in verse four, the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So these men are affirming what God is already doing. It reminds me, too, that when we when we recognize church officers, deacons and elders, when we ordain pastors in the church, we are not giving those people any authority or role that we aren't already recognizing that God has given to those folks. A sobering thought for those of us that are in any of those roles, too. David, in the same way, has been anointed, and now the people are recognizing what God's already done. And, of course, what a picture as we come into Easter week and think about Jesus. You know, have this in your mind when, when the woman comes and anoints Jesus as he's preparing to go to the cross the king of Israel, those things are being fulfilled. So God's anointing and bringing that fulfillment. Then, then uh, David, if you followed along here, I know there's a lot of big words and names in here, and I even stumbled reading a few of them. Verse 5 all the way down through 7 is Jabesh Gilead. Just set the name aside. They were people that were obviously loyal to Saul, really valued Saul. And David's even extending an olive branch to them, trying to maintain unity to say, you know, I recognize you love this one. Now, you know, come and follow me. Others have a, a, a recognized my leadership, but, but I recognize that he was valuable to you, and he gives honor to who Saul is. About the only chink that you can sort of see in Saul's armor, and we'll have to take it up in another sermon, is that he's, uh, he's fallen prey to this liability that a lot of the kings in the Old Testament did, where he, he's got multiple wives. We do see that in here. And we'll talk about that at another point. He's kind of missed that Genesis, Adam and Eve, and, of course, what Jesus affirms, uh, one man and one woman later on. But God's working. We can see God working through who David is. So it's interesting, then, that others don't see it that way. That Abner comes and grabs one of the descendants of Saul, Ish-bosheth, and takes him and says, let's, let's start our own kingdom. It uh, actually breaks down nicely if you think about the Civil War dynamic. And, and later on in First Kings, this is going to become kind of a hard and fast breakdown. It's not that way now. This is just a short-lived Civil War. But it's got north and south. You've got the Yankees and the rebels. You've got Israel and Judah that are divided up that way along these lines. And it's a reminder for us today that, uh, that it's tough to stay unified. Even when you see God sovereignly working and raising up this one David, who's been victorious in battle, who's recognized to be a man after God, there's still, uh, there's still this uh, pattern of disunity among the people. And it reminds me, you know, uh, of the things that divide us as people today. Let's take our denominational divisions. We'll tackle that first. 
which I think actually can serve a decent purpose. You know, even a, a non-denominational church has to decide what they're going to do about baptism, has to decide how they're going to structure their leadership, has to decide what their theological framework is going to be, and you know, how they're going to baptize people and so forth. So every church has to do that. And so it's, it's not in itself, I don't think, bad that you have some different groups, of Baptists and Methodists and you know, Presbyterians and Catholics and so forth, where we know what each other believes and, and we're in some kind of group together. I found this uh, humorous thing, in fact, that maybe maybe we'll find funny. We'll go the humorous route for a minute and then we'll come back to it. Uh, I found this somewhere in my notes. Uh, uh, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? We'll see if you guys like this. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb across the different denominations? It's important that we know how this works. Now, the charismatics, only one. Hands are already in the air. Hands are already in the air. The Pentecostals, a ten, one to change the light bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians, well, I'm an equal opportunity critic. Presbyterians, none. The lights will go on and off at predestined times. <laughs> Roman Catholic, none. Candles are good. Candles are good. <laughs> Baptists and Methodists, Baptists and Methodists, at least 15. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. I'll skip over the Episcopalians. This, this one's below the belt. Mormons, five, one man to change the bulb, four wives to tell them how to do it. It's on the page. Unitarians. We choose not to make a statement in favor or against the need for a light bulb. <laughs> However, if in your own journey you found that light bulbs work for you, that's fine. You're invited to write a poem, compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service, in which we'll explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, each of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. And then the last one, the Amish, what is a light bulb? So we know we divide about all kinds of things, right? And it's, it's, it's humorous, some of it. But if we've had some of that breakdown happen in our family, in our place of you know, business, employment, in our community, and if we've ever been in a church body where division starts to come in, it's not funny, is it? It's not funny, is it? it it's heartbreaking. And, and so how do we move through some of that? Well, we've just got a few minutes left, but let me, read, uh, let me read a passage to us along these lines from the book of John, chapter 17. And it's interesting, again, for us, the timing of it in light of Easter week coming up. This is from Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is in John 17. And that's just a prayer that he prayed before he died for us today about how God would work in the life of the church. And it's interesting that one of the key things he prayed for, prayed for a lot of things, prayed that we'd be centered on truth. He prayed that we'd have joy in him. But he also prayed that we would have unity, that we would have oneness as much as is possible. You know, as it says in Romans, as far as it's possible, live at peace with all men. He prayed this, starting in verse 11 of chapter 17. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which I have given them, that they may be 
one, even as we are one. He's tying our oneness to this unique Christian teaching of the Trinity, the triune God that's three in one, that is expressing unity constantly, even though there is diversity. Verse 20, if you jump on down there, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I sitting here today if we put our faith in Christ. It says that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in and us, in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. This is going to send a message to the world when we're able to overcome our uh, disunity and be unified around God's glory and his purposes. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I give to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Let me read one last thing to us that maybe will bring this home to some pretty practical application and our struggle to kind of love one another and be be unified. I'm going through the uh, screw tape letters with my Thursday morning guys group. And uh, sometimes they probably want to pull their hair out and uh, chunk, chunk, chunk the book because it gets a little bit uh, nuanced, let's say. But I think on the whole, we're getting some good stuff out of it. Chapter two. It's interesting. Bear with me as I read through this. This is uh, screw tape. The senior demon who is advising a younger demon, Wormwood. It's all fictional, but it's got some real truth to it. The younger demon, Wormwood, about how to tempt his patient, tempt his patient, who is uh, is just becoming a young believer. And I want you to read what the tempter, what the evil one likes to do to make us divide from one another, because I think it's very insightful, might be uh, some good application for us. He says, he starts this, this is letter number two, from Screwtape to Wormwood. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to despair, though hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed. After a brief sojourn in the enemy's, God is the enemy because it's all reversed, the enemy's camp. All the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. One of the great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her, spread out through all space and time and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a half-finished Gothic church building. When he goes inside, the local grocer, with a rather oily expression on his face, bustles up to him and gives him uh, one book containing a liturgy that neither of them understands and another shabby book containing religious texts, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to the pew and looks around him, he sees just the selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto wished to avoid. You want to lean pretty heavy on those neighbors. Make his mind jump back and forth between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces next to him in the pews. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people are in the pew next. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on God's side, no matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins, or odd clothes, 
the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then, he says, and I'm coming to a close here. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when a boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learn Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning how to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiring to laborious doing. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through the initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent upon emotion and therefore harder to tempt. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is much easier. All you then have to do, listen to this, is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for uh, your word. And as we see your Old Testament people wrestling with division and disunity and even uh, war, a physical conflict with one another, Lord, it, it really brings us to consider how we might resist uh, unneeded division in, in our lives and in our church body. And work towards, uh, progress towards a greater unity to even celebrate the things that are different about us. And love one another through that because Christ is at work in each of our lives. Lord, that is very, very difficult to do. And so we pray that you would do it by your spirit in our lives and in our church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.